The aviation industry is seeing more and more people transitioning into second careers as pilots, controllers, mechanics, and even content creators. So where did they come from? What were they doing before? What made them realize and chase their dreams? We find that out right here on Fly the Transition. Welcome back everyone to episode three of Fly the Transition, where we explore the journey of those making a leap into a new career in aviation. I'm your host, Jim Schilling. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join me. On this episode, we talk to Amber Peterson, a former engineer turned regional pilot. Amber certainly had the interest for aviation, but never saw it as a plausible career for her. But that didn't stop her drive to turn left instead of right every time she got on a commercial aircraft. We hear her story right here on Fly the Transition. So it's been a little over a month now since I started Fly the Transition. And in that time, I've talked to some incredible people already. Though you're listening to episode number three right now, I've done interviews through episode number five or six. The aviation community is full of really great people. And I've learned not only do the people I've been talking to have great stories, but they're all really willing to share those stories so you can see that they did it and so can you. It's really reaffirmed to me the amount of people that are ready to make this transition. Through the interviews I've conducted, the feedback I've received from others, a transition into a second career in aviation is a real thing. So I really hope that by sharing these stories, I can ignite the spark in someone to follow their dreams. So on to this episode. If you're a fan of the Flying Midwest podcast, you've heard us talk to Amber before. If you haven't, a little spoiler alert for you, Amber was AOPA's CFI of the year. In that episode, we talked to her about being a CFI and her philosophies that made her successful. But Amber didn't just stop at being a CFI, and there was more of a story there on her transition into her second career. And that's where this episode takes over. Amber grew up wanting to be an astronaut as a young child. When she graduated high school, she received flight lessons as a gift. She completed her private pilot's license, but that's where things stopped. She didn't think that a career in aviation was plausible for her. Flying was costly, and the military wasn't the direction that she wanted to go. She would find herself in engineering, a field she would successfully spend 20 years in, but ultimately, she missed the sense of adventure that came with being a pilot. Through some chance conversations with other aviators, the seed was firmly planted for her to get started on a transition. She wasted no time and, through incredible dedication, quickly moved through her ratings and became a CFI. And that wasn't just about building hours for her. She took it incredibly seriously and had a passion for it. A passion so strong that it earned her AOPA's CFI of the year. After building her hours, she finally made her way to the 121 operations of regional airlines. So let's hear from Amber about how it all started. Yeah, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be an astronaut. So I'd say that was my initial exposure to aviation. And then my high school graduation present was to get my private pilot's license. Turns out I loved it. Just it gave me a lot of confidence. It gave me a lot of just joy. It was neat being one with the air up there, you know, being able to as a female get more comfortable with technical stuff definitely helped a lot and then just overcoming challenges um so for me that was my first real exposure to aviation and just fell in love with it almost right away well i was a snooty 17 year old i may have um not mentioned that <laughs> and for whatever reason i've always been told you have to go to college you have to go to college you have to go to college and so i didn't like consider it a real career I did dabble with it a little bit as a 17-year-old would, like thinking about it, but it was 1993 and it was not the time to become a pilot. Um, and that's kind of like a reoccurring theme as we continue on. I was able to just with life, with job, with, you know, consideration of finances, it was never the right time until six years ago. I flew, gosh, I'd have to look at my logbook, but probably less than 10 times after I got my private. I mean, honestly, I just couldn't afford it. Um, you know, and as stories will happen, like I gave some chunk of money to some school that went under when I was 19 and just never was able to stay proficient enough to do it and afford it. So I just 
totally did not fly for probably 18 years. Missed it a ton, but literally didn't do it. Flying is costly, and the military wasn't exactly the route for her. Amber explored a degree and a career in engineering, a field where she would later spend 20 years. When she got her degree, she ruled out aerospace engineering and picked something that she felt would be more marketable and entered the mechanical engineering field. As she'd work her way up in this field, she began to travel more. And as she would get on a commercial flight, she'd have the urge to turn left towards the flight deck rather than right to her seat. She would eventually move into a career working in aerospace, working for a company making Gulfstream jet components. This gave her exposure to many of the test pilots and in talking with them and hearing their stories, her passion for aviation was reignited. I ended up getting a degree in mechanical engineering um, from the University of Minnesota, which um, was great. And honestly, I thought about doing aerospace, but, you know, mechanical was more marketable and I could still go into aerospace if I wanted to. I dabbled a little bit with being a pilot again after that, because um, one of the requirements essentially still is and, and certainly was a four-year degree. Um, and then I honestly just couldn't afford to do everything and um, didn't, the military wasn't the route for me. So I became, I was in automotive for um, about seven years, um, essentially doing aftermarket most of that time, made everything you want but don't need for your truck or SUV. It was a ton, ton of fun. Went to Asia, kind of learned um, that kind of route. It was great. And throughout that time, like whenever I got on a plane, um, I, I wanted to turn left, not right. And then I became a supplier manager. So kind of like uh, quality procurement and engineering for Israel Aerospace. Um, noticed like kind of that I wanted to dabble back into aviation. The division I worked for made... Um, Gulfstream jets, the G-150, G-200, turned into the G-280, 787 um, components. And it was it was great actually getting back into my little finger into aviation, actually having my private help me get my, that job. And so for essentially 20 years, I did kind of program management, manufacturing, um, quality, and engineering. Yeah. You know, it was nice just being involved in aviation, I don't. I guess I can't really, there's not really a word to describe it, but I felt at home, um, if you will, versus automotive or, you know, making boxes or some of the other stuff that I dabbled in. I, I like aviation, always have, um, and so that felt right to me to be in those spots. It was nice. It was cool talking to test pilots too, actually. That was one of my favorite parts is seeing what the pilots did and I would say in talking with these test pilots is I, I there's not like a story per se, but they kept that interest there, like them going up and talking about how they would play with the plane and, you know, brought back to just doing fun, like steep turns and stuff like that. Like they would get to do really cool stuff with this plane. And I missed that sense of adventure as most pilots will say, I mean, I say there's two types of people in this world, pilots and not pilots. And essentially every pilot, like as soon as you take off, you're just, you love it. Right. And I was able to have that little touch of that by talking with these guys and they got to do really cool stuff, you know? So that was neat. Awesome. So as Amber said, there's pilots and there's non-pilots. And she clearly missed the sense of adventure that came with being a pilot. She had plenty of exposure to live vicariously through the test pilots that she worked with. But it wasn't until an unexpected chance conversation in a kitchen in South Dakota, of all places, that she did something about her longing for the skies. So I guess there's a bug in my head. Um, so this would have been, you know, 10-ish years ago now, let's say, when you could, you'd start reading, uh, reading about there's this pilot shortage, there's this pilot shortage, and, you know, a little bit of like, oh, maybe I could do it. Um, but really what it was, I went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota with some friends because that's where all good things happen. And Sioux Falls, South Dakota? Went... Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in a kitchen. That's that's where the dream happens. Okay. But no, we went and um, saw a friend's play and he was having an after party at his house. And I started talking to a NetJets pilot in his kitchen. And we talked airplane till like two in the morning. It was pretty ridiculous and that night just changed my life 
I called my long-term boyfriend on the way home the next day and was like, I think I'm going to be a pilot. And honestly, just got in a 152 later that week and then really started doing the due diligence about what is it going to take. I'm literally um, just turned 40 at this point, you know, making that career change, finances, all that. But yeah, talking to talking to a NetJets pilot in the kitchen and hopping back in a 152. So all good things come out of a kitchen in Sioux Falls, South Dakota is what I got out of that. Yep, exactly. That's the summary. So start looking for one. Exactly. All right. I got to get to Sioux Falls this weekend. <laughs> so now the seed is firmly planted and it was time to get started. But starting off a new career in aviation at 40 versus 17 was a little different. She was established, had a good income, and would have to really look at her options carefully. She would also have to work through the process of getting her medical back. So how did she navigate the change in direction? I mean, that's where I would say the difference is of doing this when you're 40 versus when you're 17 is you start thinking, really start thinking about the finances. You know, I was an established professional at that time with a, a respectable income. I had some time off um, and I would need to get my medical back. So that um, was all the stuff that you start thinking about. Um, you know, as I'm sure um, probably folks who are listening to this podcast, they've realized that you're looking at somewhere between, you know, maybe on a good day, 40000 to 80000 based on I already had my private to get through CFI. Um, that is money I didn't have in the bank at that point, but I was much more financially able um, at that point than I was, say, 10 years earlier. Um, so did some soul searching on that, um, looked for financial aid as everybody does pretty much realize it's not there. <laughs> um, looked at everything that you do when you're debating, you know, um, do I want to get financial aid and get my associates and do 141? Do I want to go do the ATP route and just hammer it out? Um, for me, what the right choice was, was primarily to do my flight training at a Part 61 school in the Twin Cities. Um, and I shopped around very actively all the schools there as well, um, just with who's the good CFI, where's the decent maintenance, um, stuff like that, which, you know, was a lot different than, you know, when my dad took me into the flight school when I was 17 and says, this is where you're going to be. Um, so... It was it was good. And then I had had breast cancer in 2010. So I hadn't ever lost my medical, but I didn't have it. And that was a couple of obstacles there as well, working with um, OKC to, to get it back. And actually, I, my experience was nothing but positive or very reasonable, I should say. I got my full medical as well. That did delay my start a few months though. It definitely got backed up in COVID just based on my experience, but there were people, I, I don't know, I'm knock on a lot of wood. Um, maybe I had the right person looking at my stuff, but I definitely got through a lot quicker than other people that were, in, you know, trying to get through the process at that time as well. So for me, part 61 was right for me because I was a working professional. I needed some flexibility to my schedule. Maybe it was going to take me longer to learn or a different learning style. And also, I was 40, so I really, I think I knew a little bit more about myself and what was going to work for me or not work for sure. me. And a cookie cutter environment was not going to work for me, which was why I didn't choose, you know, said brand name school as I knew a cookie cutter was not going to work for me. So yeah, I chose a Part 61 school. I'm really glad I did. I started that first year. So I say I flew a little bit casually that summer, again, kind of April through September timeframe till I got my medical and then took my check ride that December. I don't want to sugarcoat it. For me, it was very, very difficult to work full-time and work on my instrument rating. I mean, I gave up my social life. All I did was sleep, study, work, and rinse and repeat. I remember on that Thanksgiving, I was so exhausted. I just went and like slept for four hours. Sure. So it was, it was not 
pleasant. Um, it was worth it, 100%, but it was an absolute ton of work. So I successfully, sort of successfully, um, took my check ride in December, meaning I am one of the lucky people that had a true gyro failure on their instrument oh. ride. Um, I just, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And the examiner just looks at me and is like, guess we're starting with a partial panel approach. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, we are. So anyway, I managed to then finish up 58 days later because of weather and life. And by the time that summer rolled around, I was like, you know, actively building time and um, started really realizing how much work my CFI was going to be. So I would say I worked on my commercial and my CFI at the same time, trying to minimize cost. What worked for me is I would say I probably did, you know, 70, 80% of my training at one flight school. And then I had a mentor who had a sim um, who is a Sun Country pilot. So he helped me um, a lot with kind of that knowledge. And then I went to, I'm happy to name drop here. They did a great job CFI boot camp out in California um, for essentially a, a week of CFI boot camp. And I learned so much that week. Um, I would highly recommend them. Um, so that summer, I got to the point where I couldn't work full time and finish up everything. So I went to three quarters time with work. My work was great and that they gave me um, three quarters of my accounts. And um, I was able then to get my commercial and my CFI that I believe it was December and January, which worked out well, a lot of work, um, but couldn't be happier. Um, you know, after I passed that CFI ride and was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually gonna get paid <laughs> now. Uh, was just amazing because, you know, I, I, as, as other individuals do, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, decide to essentially leave a very secure job and environment and just pick up something new. It takes a lot of courage. And for some people, it doesn't work out. And I was just so thankful it did. Um, really lucky with that. So Amber was well on her way through her ratings. But it came with some costs and a lot of dedication to her studies. So being a working adult, how long did it take Amber to get through her ratings? And what were the challenges she faced along the way? It was about a year, five months, majority of the time working full time, you know, three quarters to a, a full time for that. And essentially, that was what I did with my life. There's something to be said is as you age, it does take you longer to learn. Um, so it definitely took me longer to learn than some of my 20 year old peers. And I think also I wanted to make sure I did a good job uh, being a CFI because there are unfortunately so many poor CFIs out there. I wanted to make sure I would be a good CFI or to the best of my ability on day one. Um, and then I think also, you know, I understand the, the risk associated with this profession a lot more than I did when I was 17. Um, so that that for those reasons, I would say maybe it took me a little bit longer um, than it may perhaps could have, but I wouldn't have changed anything. Sure. Having a CFI rating in hand, it was time to start getting paid to fly. Amber started building her hours as a CFI. It was a role that she took very seriously as she had seen her fair share of bad CFIs when starting to make this transition. She dedicated herself to thinking of and meeting the students' needs. She also believed in the importance of her students experiencing other CFIs along the way, kicking her students from the nest, so to speak. This allowed them to see good and bad traits in other CFIs, further enhancing their training. That um, really goes back to that, you know, first two weeks where I was shopping for a flight school is I flew with uh, probably four or five, six different CFIs. And I was utterly unimpressed with all but one of them. That initial impression, that primacy, if you will, of there's a lot of really bad instructors out there. And oh my gosh, this is horrible. Is this, Am I going to be able to find the right person? And there is a pilot shortage. And there's a bunch of young kids out there that are working on this that don't know how horrible that hour just was because they don't know any better. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure to not be that person 
And even I was inspired by actually a CFI that I went, I'm down in Sarasota right now, went up with the first time, um, went up with him and a flight school down here. And I almost canceled because I'm there already. Like just I'd wanted to do some G1000 work and ask, you know, whoever it is at the front desk of the flight school, how long has such and such been an instructor? And she beats around the bush. I'm like, uh-oh. So I ask him while I'm getting checked out to rent their planes. So when did you pass your check right? He's like, last week. And I'm like, uh-huh. And he ended up being really impressive, young kid, like 21, and but just really knew his stuff and knew how to treat me like he cared and we still text we just texted yesterday i asked him some approaches to go down here because he was a true professional that did it yeah. right and he inspired me on day one i can do it right also so yeah i give a hundred percent to all my students i'll text them whenever they need it i'll be there whenever i can i'll go that extra mile to make sure that they get what they get what they need the biggest thing, put yourself in that individual's shoes. What is it that you would have needed at that time? What is it that you would have wanted at that time? What would have helped you at that time? And it's never going to be just for the CFI to show up and sit there, right? And maybe it is for a CFI to show up and sit there. For example, on that commercial two-hour ride, I pretty much guarantee you they know how to get somewhere two hours away, sure. right? So quiz them like oral questions or combine it with instrument training do something to make that time worth the student's time and money don't just sit there one of the things i really like about a part 61 environment is the fact that it is flexible and then what do i mean by that if we're supposed to go up and do steep turns but the ceiling's 2000 feet then communicate to the student ahead of time we're going to do ground reference maneuvers. Maybe watch this video if they're expecting something else. I always texted my instrument students, um, or I'd like to say always 99% of the time, text your instrument students the day before what approaches you're going to shoot. So they have time to look at the plates because realize at that level, it takes them 15 minutes to look at a plate that might take you one minute. So they have time to digest, have questions ready for you when you come in. So remember where you were at and what you needed um, is the biggie on that. The other big thing that I did that um, when I was in the flight school environment is to, I refer to it as I fired my students. I should still figure out better phraseology on that. <laughs> but I think it works though. You're right. I would never, um, I, d I did a little bit like people might come back for their CFI or I might do their double I, but I would never do two different ratings with the same individual because I had a different CFI for each one of my certificates and ratings. And I learned so much good and bad from each one of those individuals. So I became what I hope was the best out of all those six individuals. I would like be training CFIs that had had one CFI. So people working on their CFI that had one CFI the whole time. And they're like, that, that was all they knew. They knew him, you know, versus being exposed to some different ways to think about things or... I've never seen that before, which is a little concerning when you're about to be right. a CFI and literally seen some things before. So um, I encourage that. I just went up with a gal and she was a great CFI to get checked out recently. Who just said, yeah, I'm looking on a private. So then, then I'll have, you know, three ratings with that individual. And that wasn't my place. So I didn't see anything, but it just, it just hurt me. Like, oh, fire your students that they will learn other things um that's that's a biggie that i've got so i've i've been recognized a few times with um some awards most recently i i guess i still am the reigning aopa cfi of the are. year at the national level which um was just a huge huge recognition obviously but for me it felt absolutely wonderful knowing 
all that hard work that I'd put in, knowing all that money I'd spent, all that time I'd spent, the I can't make it out tonight to get where I needed to be was worth it and that I had impacted people's lives in a very positive way. And um, it just it just felt absolutely great. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm very pleased to be the CFI of the year and knowing that I'm doing some stuff right. You don't get that. Sometimes you do in the corporate world. You get, you know, you get a plaque and a good job, but it was really too usually, you know, it was you landed an account or you made some money or you finished a project on time. For being the CFI of the year, I was changing people's lives. I was helping them achieve a dream. I was doing good when maybe somebody else had failed them. And that personal touch of that award made all the difference to me. That is so cool. My love of aviation or or of when I got that 152 at feeling Mm -hmm. right was obviously a huge part of it, right? Um, But I'm not going to lie in that the other huge part of it is when you leave the jet bridge, you're done. And when you come back at your showtime, whatever time your report time is, that's when you turn back on. And I was in a profession where, like so many of us do, and it's it's almost um, expected now, is you've got your cell phone on all the time. I was working internationally, so I was usually uh, talking overseas, working four hours on Sunday sure. morning. Um, it was the I when I took a vacation, I came back to double the work, you know, it, so that was really appealing. I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I was 40 and I was not wanting to do that for another 25 years. There is nothing that I can think of where you potentially can have the schedule that you have as a 121 pilot and the income that you have as a 121 pilot, even starting in your 40s, there's just nothing like that. You know, I talk to people that I fly with now. I'm at a regional, so I fly with a lot of individuals in their 20s, and they just have no concept of how lucky they are. Just absolutely no concept to be making that kind of money and not be needing to be on your cell phone all the time or responding to emails. It's insane. Like I'll, you know, as one can imagine, I've got like an hour and a half, two hours sit at the airport. It used to be, boom, let's get something knocked out, emails. And now it's like, well, I'll go grab a piece of pizza and call a friend, you know, and it's just unreal how lucky it is. So I wanted to go down the 121 route for schedule. I'm not going to lie about that. And uh, I didn't want to be on call with 135 or you know, potentially throwing bags or any of that stuff. I wanted to, when I needed to get to work, get to work. When you go home, you go home. Turns out I'm I'm good with that um, now as a 121 pilot. Turns out I miss being a CFI. So I'm now, you know, in Florida and I'm going to be um, going up uh, and CFIing for the next three days because that's where my passion is. But uh, the schedule thing is the regional's not calling me. That's darn nice. Yeah. Yeah. With Amber's decision made on part 121, now it's time to start applying for her dream job. Even during a pilot shortage, breaking into the airlines isn't a simple process. There are lengthy application packets and interviews, among other steps, before you get that coveted class date for your airline. Having a solid grasp on the process is important for applicants, but the process itself isn't always easy to understand. That's hard to understand. To be honest, all this stuff is hard to understand, like part 61, part 141 in the beginning, early stages to how do I become an airline pilot or look for jobs if you don't want to be an airline pilot. Um, most of the airlines, I I might say all of them that are the initial hirers use um, airlineapps.com. As people will say, allocate, you know, 40 plus hours to fill that out. And they're pretty much not exaggerating. Try to remember where you worked and lived when you were 17 because, yes, they actually do wow. care. Yeah, and all my speeding tickets. I keep getting told how many speeding <laughs> tickets I have, and I'm sitting there going, those are all the ones I remember, but I'm pretty sure I have more. So you fill that out and ask, 
everything about your work history and they do want to know like when you worked at the Dairy Queen when you were 16 type stuff. They want to know things like like I had been laid off 15 years ago, 2007, and um, they needed a reference to make sure I didn't sit around and eat bonbons, of which I reached out to a friend of mine and they're like, I don't even remember that. I'm like, yeah, just just say I was looking <laughs> for a job. We'll be fine. <laughs> Leave out the bonbon part. You know, um, so you start. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I was eating bonbons looking for a job. So you fill that out. Um, essentially it will go to the airlines that you choose it, that you like pick for it to go to, you know, right now it really is like they say, everybody's hiring. Um, so the airlines I applied to were ones where I could, um, hopefully get hired and stay at Minneapolis In Minneapolis, I didn't want to commute. And then most people get a call back ridiculously quickly for an interview they say now um to apply at a thousand hours so at 1500 you'll walk in the door um i was coming out of it with covid and i had intended to stay for some personal reasons with my family um for uh, longer than my 1500 hours so for me it wasn't too much longer um before covid opened up and things happened but um i got a put in my airline apps some of the regionals the one i'm with uh required something on their platform as well um talk to people that you know because um a friend of mine was there and said call them uh because things are a little messed up with their internal stuff and sure as heck it just hadn't gone through um but i think two days later i got a call for an interview as soon as i called them and things okay. just hadn't been processed right and then at that time, um, initial stuff was still remote. Um, now it's, you know, obviously back to in-person. But depending on who you're with, they do a technical and then kind of a, a more personal, um, subjective interview. Um, there's jokes about tell me about a uh -huh. time stories. So literally, you've got 20, you know, scenarios, 10 to 20, like, stories that you can apply to different scenarios. You know, tell me about a time you had a conflict with somebody. Tell me about a time you had an emergency. And you kind of just practice those. Um, really what they're looking for is just, you know, um, that you'll be able to sit in the cockpit with somebody and that you can deal with a stressful situation, okay? What's crazy about this industry is there's gouges on everything. Everything's online. And they know that you know or that you should know everything's online and if you don't know everything's online you probably shouldn't be in the industry because half of the industry is talking to people and being willing to ask questions um and and working it if you don't know how the ecs system works on your airplane well then you need to ask somebody and yeah. so i think that's part of the game also is knowing how to find your resources and who to talk to um but like I got asked the three different types of hydroplaning on my interview. I'll never forget. I'm literally thinking to myself, oh, my God, I read that an hour and a half ago. Yes. <laughs> and nailed it. Um, that's it. You, and you get something called a class date, which I had no idea what that meant. And that's the day that you show up for your first initial training. Um, there's some other kind of normal stuff before that. Like you have to give them, you know copies of your medical and get, sure. you know, fingerprinted, stuff like that. But um, class date is the first day you start getting paid, which is always exciting. Getting hired is only the first step towards making your way to the flight deck. There's plenty of training that needs to be done to ensure that you are ready to act as a member of that flight crew. It can be an intimidating process. So I asked Amber, what does the training process look like for a newly hired airline pilot? Some companies give you some resources ahead of time. My company didn't. Um, which, you know, was unfortunate because I'm a, kind of a self-starter. I did, you know, Quizlet's a great thing. So I did a lot of Quizlets before I started, though. You go to something called Indoc, which is kind of the the rules about how the company works, I'll say. Sure. Um, for, gosh, a week and a half, two weeks. Um, and then Gen Subs for a similar amount of time that goes more into, like, procedures almost, I'd say, or policy maybe. And then you get into systems, which is systems, you know, you, two, a couple of weeks of that. I um, went somewhere where you take a test at the end of each one of those um, written test and um, need 80% to continue on. 
and then you get into procedures trainers, which essentially is, it's just kind of looks like a cockpit. It's computer screens. So you learn which buttons to push to do things and you can simulate some emergencies in there. And then you get into the real full motion sim after that. And there's uh, something called a procedures validation after the procedures trainer, a maneuvers validation in the middle of the sims. And then your actual check ride at the end of all that, which is a pretty short oral um, because you've taken all these tests until then. And then um, a check ride, which is, uh, is a challenge. It was really, really challenging for me. I'd never... I, in my training, I always kind of like we talked, I wanted to do the best that I could. So if I felt like I needed an extra lesson, I would pay for it um, uh -huh. or I'd delay my check right a week if I didn't feel like I was ready. That wasn't an option in 121. You know, your systems test was going to be when your systems test was. You know, the instructors are great. You could text them a question, but it was when it was, and you weren't going to be able to get additional training in the sim if you met what the instructor considered was the requirements. So okay. that was that was really hard for me. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I wanted more time in the sim, but, you know, I was I was passing, you know, and I was safe, and, you know, that was just that was hard for me but to the point where i actually um i reached out to everybody i knew for help and um you know kind of mental um moral type stuff and the best suggestion i got was and there's you know psychology on this is that you for two weeks if you write down self-affirmations of which i'm immediately just laughing at this individual telling me until they said no, uh, there is something called a checkride therapist, and I went to him, and I'm like, oh, I'm now piping up, and can I have his number? Um, <laughs> is, you know, these self-affirmations of, I do deserve a CRJ rating. I can hand-fly a non-precision approach. I know they're going to put me in a hold. I can handle it, and you just keep saying these things. So I had them all over my hotel room, you know, all over everything, and I would say these so it works in that one of my favorite ones to say was that I can hand fly the f*** out of a non-precision approach. <laughs> and on my check ride, both me and the captain missed a step down altitude that I was hand flying a localizer. Instead, last thing on the check ride. And the, the examiner in the back was like, blah, 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 how'd it go? Yada, yada, yada. He's like, did you notice the step down at X that you didn't brief? And it was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> it was like, well, you're 50 feet low. need to redo it. And I was exhausted. We're three and a half hours in. Yeah. You know, just you're allowed to repeat, you know, this thing. And I'm not even kidding you. As I'm fighting with this, you know, gusty wind scenario that they gave you, what pops in my head is I can hand fly the f out of a non-precision approach. Just popped right in my head, got right in there and hard landing, passed with flying colors. And so there's something to that that saved my check ride is those affirmations. I'm not going to lie. That's a cool story. Yeah. Stuff that works. You got to share what works. That's that's yeah. this industry. If, if you don't share these things um, and learn from each other. You know, good pilots always learning. And part of it is these soft skills as well to support yeah. each other um, when there are hard times, when you lose an engine. You know, what are you going to do to learn from it and to help each other through it? You know, uh, so when you get done with training, once you pass your check ride, then you get at least 25 hours with um, a line check pilot. Um, and then he or she will just kind of show you the ropes and then um, make sure you're following procedures, you know, that you can land a plane with passengers. So now after all that work, all of her time that she dedicated and all of the rigorous training for her airline, Amber is ready to start flying passengers. But the next chapter in this book is a bit more of a choose your own adventure scenario. Depending on what base you pick, depending on seniority and a number of other factors, you may either move to the line as they call it relatively quickly or end up flying reserves. Her base, being Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport, was a more senior base, leaving Amber to fly reserves for a period of time. So what does that mean? You are normally on reserve. That's part of the challenge uh, or the, the strategy 
that one learns as far as bidding, et cetera, which there should be a course on to get the schedule that you want. So uh, depending on the base that you're at, you can almost get a, a line right off the bat. Um, where I'm at, um, Minneapolis is senior, so I um, was on reserve for way too long. Um, so what reserve is, is depending on the airline, um, you have about 18 days a month that you need to be within, again, depending on the airline, an hour and 45 to two and a half hours away, ready to be at the gate in your uniform to report. Okay. So I would just, I'd have my uniform in my car. You're able to look at weather, able to look at the other reserve pilots, more senior or less senior than you, and kind of what's going on. And you'd kind of be able to make an educated guess on if you're going to get a call or not. Um, but I would definitely make, you know, plans with friends with a, hey, I might need to cancel disclaimer or, or give up, go up and give a lesson. Hey, I might need to cancel disclaimer. But that's that's what you do. It, it really varies airline to airline and base to base. If you're on reserve for a month or if you're on reserve for eight, nine months. And then again, when you captain upgrade, it's the same exercise again. So people will wait to upgrade, for example, so that they can be more senior when they become a captain and have a better quality of life. There's a lot of um, strategy involved. And again, that goes with just talking with people. Some IT stuff, understanding what each thing means, but just talking to people to understand how to do it and what works for you is not going to work for somebody else. Maybe like I like my time off. I want to get enough time to stay proficient, you know, so I can work 14 days a month while some people may want to work 20 days a month. There are some people bid 14 days a month and then they pick up 150% pay, which that makes sense. So yeah, there's a lot of strategy involved. So if you're one of those listening to this podcast because you're interested in this type of flying, you might be curious about some of the other nuances to 121 operations. Maybe you're interested in how the pay works or scheduling. Amber explains more. So day in the life, again, depending on the airline but um, and what model aircraft you get on, it's uh, usually three to five day trips are what they're called. Um, that would involve then the, the company will pay for your hotel um, shuttle there and back. Oftentimes there are what we call a good overnight. So maybe, you know, 16 hours somewhere that you'd want to be. Sometimes you're 16 hours not where you want to be. <laughs> um, and sometimes you get what's called a min rest night. So you're in and out in 10 hours and barely have time to brush your teeth, really. But overall, I think the airlines are trying to improve quality of life to keep people. One thing I didn't realize, or I guess realized, you know, the, when you look at these pay rates, it's like, oh, wow, they're making $100 an hour. That's insane, which it is, certainly, uh, compared to the $12 an hour folks weren't making that long ago. But realize that you are getting paid from parking break to parking break. So yeah. all that time of being on the hotel shuttle, walking through the airport, running checklists, dealing with a maintenance issue, don't get paid for that. So full-time is 75 hours, and that really is full-time, um, 75 hours a month. That really is full a full-time workload. Obviously, you can do more than that if you want, um, but that's something I didn't realize. So the trips do vary. And it's kind of all about bidding. Like, I'd have to look, but then you get paid for all 75. Okay. Uh, so you're actually flying, per se, somewhere between three to probably scheduled, you know, set not, not more than eight, seven and a half-ish hours maybe a day. On some of the smaller hoppers, like if you're, a, you know, on, on a 200, for example, I know... Because there's such short legs, it, it is undesirable because you're actually getting paid for like, you know, 40 minutes and you're doing four legs a day and it's just painful. Sure. It's a lot of work, um, which is why, you know, people want to get to larger aircraft as you go further and it's just it's less work, to be honest. So, yeah, there's a sweet spot for each individual um, and, and everybody will figure out what 
that is for them. Like for me, I have no desire to fly over the ocean. I would get ridiculously bored. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, doing a Minneapolis to Green Bay four times a day would just be miserable also. Um, so there's that sweet spot. Um, other thing with 121 that a lot of people like they a lot of people are either they want to fly packages or they want to fly passengers. So that's something else to think about. Um, I'm definitely I like I personally like working with flight attendants and I like passengers. It's nice dealing with humans. And I was in the back for so long getting from A to B that it's I, I enjoy, you know, helping people get to their work or to their um, vacation or whatever. Sure. I like saying goodbye and thanks for flying with us. So, yeah. And then when they tell me I had an amazing landing, makes your day. <laughs> so Amber's had quite the journey over the last few years to be able to achieve her dream. So where is she now with her flying? And what does the future hold? What I am up to now in uh, 121 is the exciting news is I have a line so that um, for phraseology on that means that I'm not on reserve. It's nice. It's that I'm living the dream as to why I got, besides the love of aviation schedule, um, why I wanted to be a 121 pilot. I am working 14 days a month total. I, you know, had Christmas through New Year's off. When I'm done flying, I, I don't have my cell phone which is just the greatest thing ever. So that's what I'm doing with 121. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to stay at the current regional or maybe move somewhere else, um, which is, you know, again, it's very interesting um, coming from a different background, professional background, well, anything except aviation, and that there really are 121. There's, I mean, we can name them off, 15, 20 companies, period, that you can work for, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just very interesting and in trying to figure out in this economy, in this um, situation, who's going to live, who's not going to, you know, or the regional's going to disappear, what's going to go on. So it's a, that's, if anybody knows, let me know, give me a call. Um, <laughs> and um, so that's, that's kind of where that's at. I knew seniority was a thing. I guess I just didn't realize to the extent of how important that seniority number is for your quality of life. And that's honestly why I became a 121 pilot, besides the love of aviation, was quality of life. So figuring out what that right answer is for me, I plan to stay wherever I'm going to stay, though, until I retire um, in 18 years, just because I don't want to have to redo training. I don't want to sit on reserve anymore. Um, I just want to enjoy um, my friends and family and the fact that I get paid to fly. Yeah, and then I still CFI whenever I can. You know, that varies from a couple lessons a month to maybe a little bit too much. Um, but it's <laughs> it's the best to help somebody out get where they are. And I just I just love it. I do it. I do it for free. Um, but it's nice making a little bit of money as well. So. So after hearing Amber's success and her journey through the transition, what advice does she have for those who wish to follow in her footsteps? The biggest advice I have is that you can do it. Um, when I was a CFI, that I ended up um, helping a lot of people um, in you know my age bracket because I understood the challenges of you know maybe still having a family at home probably and a job. What you're gonna need to do is realize that there will be a lot of sacrifice. If you go into it with the mindset of essentially you're going to have to pay for an additional degree and give the time involved to get a difficult additional degree, then as long as you understand that that's what's going to happen, then go for that and then realize as a CFI you know, not knowing what the individual made before, it's probably going to be a significant pay cut. You're probably going to have to give up some evenings and weekends. So um, be prepared for that. It's going to be a multi-year journey. So depending on how old the kids are, that's a consideration. Um, but the biggest thing is you can do it. It is a real thing. People do it. In my class of 
16 people. I was the oldest, but I believe there were four of us, um, of four individuals in their 30s. It wasn't all 22-year-olds. Okay. There's a, a good percentage of individuals doing this in their 30s and 40s, even 50s. You know, one of my friends um, went for it and he's 50 and and uh, in entering 121. Um, so, yeah, he's got, you know, 15 years in front of him and it's it's not too late. So Amber's not unlike many others who have talked about their journey into aviation. She had an early desire for it, but didn't see it as a plausible career path for herself. She went on to a very successful professional career, but the passion was still there. All it would take was the right spark to reignite that passion for aviation. I don't think the fact that Amber was very successful in her past career and the fact that she became AOPA CFI of the Year are a coincidence. See, in talking with Amber, she talks about the dedication and sacrifices needed to be able to achieve her goals, and she doesn't strike me as a person who does anything halfway. So what can we learn from that? This transition is completely plausible. You just have to put in the work. And as you consider your own path, you may want to also consider the sacrifices you might have to make to get there. But those sacrifices shouldn't scare anyone off, as Amber shows they're completely doable. Another thing that I found really interesting was even though she's made it to Part 121, she's still actively instructing. It's something she has a passion for and something she's good at. In fact, she's willing to talk to just about anyone who's interested in making the same transition she did, so she can share her stories and experiences so that others may learn. So if you have a question for Amber or you want to talk to her about a transition yourself, I'll put her contact information in the show notes, and she'd be more than happy to talk to you about your transition. I can't begin to thank Amber enough, not only for taking the time to be on the podcast, but for also making herself available to any of our listeners who may have questions themselves. It's just one more thing that makes Amber so great, and we really appreciate it. So, before I go, if you like what I'm doing here on the Fly the Transition podcast, make sure you like and subscribe, rate and review, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have an idea for a future episode, or you'd like me to share your story, you can reach out to me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fly the transition, on Instagram at fly midwest underscore gym, or at fly the transition at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Fly the Transition. We'll see you next time.